0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Take's Tim Stenovec from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And
2: I'm Tim Stenovec of Bloomberg Quick Take. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. I'm
1: losing count, Tim, but it is week 47 working from home still for many because of the pandemic. But remember also this week we had a snowstorm in the Northeast.
2: Yeah, it was an interesting week where markets settled down after last week's frenzy over those meme stuff. Yeah, right.
1: We did. We even talked about this throughout the week. It felt like things calmed down a little bit.
2: It did, but the story is not over, Carol.
1: No. And one company in particular that was in the spotlight, Amazon, on the news that the man who created it all, Jeff Bezos, stepping down as CEO.
2: Look, this left me speechless on Tuesday afternoon, and I wasn't the (laughs) only one.
3: I uh, uttered a
1: loud expletive when I saw (laughs) the news. This
2: hour, we're going to hear from Bloomberg's Brad Stone, who literally wrote the book about Amazon on why now and the new era at the company.
1: He definitely was speechless. Also this hour, J&J's chief scientific officer on their one-shot COVID vaccine.
2: We have to stay very
4: vigilant, and we have been able to do that with a single dose.
1: Plus, speaking of the vaccine...
4: Dispelling the this continues
5: to be a challenge. I think it's something that we're going to be working on all through first and second quarter of
1: the year. Bishop T.D. Jakes on getting Blacks minorities to actually take it. We
2: begin with this week's cover story, and we've lost count on how many COVID-related cover stories Bob Langrith has done for Business Week. As the world continues to try to get COVID-19 under control, Bob's story this week reminds us that it's never too early to start planning for the next pandemic. (laughs) Uh, I can't believe we're already thinking about that, Carol.
1: Yeah, and he's not kidding we got to start planning now. Here's Bob Langreth, who is healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News, who joined us along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor, Joel Weber.
6: We need a plan for it. And, yeah. you know, the, the, the cover line there, ready for the next one, it ends with a question mark, like, ready for the next one? <laughs> and yeah. right now, we are not. And um, what Bob did um, and reported out here, and I've lost track of how many cover stories yeah. uh, Bob's yeah. done over the course of the last year for us. Uh, it's been truly amazing. Um, but what he really maps out here is the five point plan. And if we were to get on it and you know jump all over this five point plan, we might find ourselves um, in a pretty decent place, certainly a better one than we found ourselves in a year ago uh, right about now. Um, and, and Bob, along the way, you, you also got some exclusive reporting uh, about you know how close we were to actually maybe having, uh, a, a leg up on on viruses like this. Um, so walk us through what, what you learned um, as you reported out uh, your cover story.
7: Yeah, so it turns out, uh, as I did this reporting, you know, that there were a, a lot of people thinking about this and interested, you know, uh, years. They didn't know it was going to be a coronavirus, but everyone knew something was coming eventually that infectious disease experts did. And there were people that were thinking about how to prepare and how to do things, but uh, there just wasn't the willpower and energy to get it done. And one company, GlaxoSmithKline, I found out through my reporting, actually proposed a whole uh, kind of a epidemic uh, preparedness vaccine research center they proposed this to uh, the U.S. government, to BARDA, uh, which is what's funding a lot of the vaccines now. It's a small agency funding a lot of the vaccines now. And they proposed a research center that would have looked in specifically into messenger RNA vaccine. That's uh, one of the successful vaccines and adenovirus-based vaccines. The other type of vaccine that has been successful. And the idea was they would have taken, like everything uh that you know looked worrisome and gotten prototype vaccines you know into early trials so they could be ready to go and invent the next epidemic but it just didn't happen so we weren't quite as prepared you know as we should have been
1: right and we should have been right we could have been that's the whole point
7: and the cost of this thing yeah it would have been 595 million over 10 years which i guess sounded like a lot you know three or four years ago but <laughs> compared to the cost we've had to bear now through this pandemic uh you know it's just uh you know, you know, nothing like that. Now people are kind of dusting off versions of the proposal and saying, let's, let's do it again. Let's do something similar. And some of these ideas are out there. So what, you know, we need is the willpower to do it. And another idea that's uh, out there is to form, you know, one of the problems we have is, is good, you know, data on the, uh, right at these key moments when epidemics are starting to emerge. Uh, you know, it's sort of like a, uh, early in a forest fire. You got to identify it and identify the threats really soon and act. And for that, you need really, really good surveillance and really, really, really good data. And one of the ideas that's out there is to form a, sort of a national weather uh, service style hmm. agency uh, that would model, uh, you know, upcoming emerging viruses and pandemics and come up with forecasts that were more reliable, uh, uh, you know, to, to tell to warn people, tell them, you know, what's coming or what might be coming, and you know, give politicians kind of the, the fortitude and cover to act.
2: What that's about the when Biden it... administration yeah, is looking into? What about when it comes to international cooperation and making sure there is international cooperation for the next pandemic? One of the key themes that you highlight is repairing and augmenting the WHO.
7: Yeah, and this is probably, you know, this is an area that people are talking about and it's probably the the trickiest, most difficult area to to, to fix or improve reform because the basic problem we have is, you know, that the viruses, they cross borders. They don't care about you know, countries and international borders, or, you know, which political regime is in power. They they go everywhere, and that's what we found. Uh, And yet... Uh, so we want companies, countries to cooperate as much as possible in kind of reporting the early stages of the pandemic. But the problem is no one really has the authority, uh, to do that To And, and, and if countries don't report on time because they don't want to admit the scope of the problem, it might hurt their economy, et cetera. We've seen this again and again. Then the world is a step behind. And the WHO, uh, you know, it doesn't have a lot of teeth. That's just the way it's structured. So there's, there's rumblings and discussions of what else can we do? You know, what can, can we give the WHO more teeth? But we can can we add to it to give some other group uh, uh, sort of a, a, it was called like a, you know, a NATO uh, for emerging emerging viruses, you know, biological NATO. Right. So have, you know, a little more uh, power, maybe a group of like-minded nations to prepare. So that's this kind of idea that's out there that people are, are trying to formulate and trying to figure out what to do. But that's probably the single, you know, most difficult area.
1: So five points in that story about how we could start planning for the next pandemic. That was Bob Langrith, healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News and Bloomberg Business Week editor, Jill Weber.
2: Look, planning for the next pandemic is certainly important, but totally also getting out of this one is very important too, Carol.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We're going to hear from J&J's chief scientific officer on that company's vaccine that has complete protection against hospitalizations and deaths. That was something that really caught your attention.
2: Yeah, I mean, 100 percent. It doesn't get much better than that. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
1: So the virus and vaccine rollout continue to be front and center, Tim. We know that this week. We saw California, New York announcing plans for new stadium sites for mass inoculations and more drug companies continuing to work on their experimental vaccines and also figure out how to take those existing vaccines to defeat new mutations. Well, just
2: about one week ago, Johnson & Johnson made news by saying that its one-shot vaccine generated strong protection against COVID-19 in a large late-stage trial, including preventing 66 percent of moderate to zero cases of the virus. 85% of severe infections and 100% of hospitalizations and death. This is great news.
1: And then this week, J&J filed with the FDA for emergency use authorization for their experimental COVID-19 vaccine. Now, one week ago, we caught up with Paul Stoffels. He's vice chairman of the executive committee and chief scientific officer over at Johnson & Johnson to talk about their vaccine findings and production ramp-up.
4: We did a very large study of 45,000 people in the US, South America, and Latin America in a totally different environment where now huge transmission, but also many variants are present. And what we saw is that in, in the high, in the, in the severe disease, we got a very high protection, 85% against uh, severe disease, as well as 100% for death and hospitalization. And that across the entire uh, study, including the South Africa study. And why is that important? We did 6,000 people in South Africa, and we found that 90% of the strains were the South African strains. And we got even a better, we got an 89% protection in South Africa against the severe disease that 100% against hospitalization and 100% against death. So that shows that the vaccine is efficacious in, in severe disease as well as against
2: significant new strains. Given the results of this study, do you expect new and even more powerful variants to emerge in the future? Yeah, we have to stay very
4: vigilant. Uh, uh, There's so much viral virus replication in the world and now new vaccines being used and the virus is following the Darwin principles, the fittest survive and they will take over as in in that race. And so you will see probably more variants, but um, strong immunity, antibody immunity and cellular immunity probably can overcome that. But we have to stay very vigilant. And we have been able to do that with a single dose, and I think that is going to be very effective in fast rollout as we are uh, making a billion doses in the course of the year. Well,
1: Mm -hmm. let's talk about that, because when you talked with our David Weston last fall, Paul, that's exactly what you talked about, a billion doses you anticipated for 2021. So that's a real number. You expect it. And can you give us an idea of that billion dose rollout? What does it look like over the next few months?
4: Yeah. So at the moment, we are we are setting up many manufacturing plans in late stage. We are getting approval from different regulators in the world on that. So it's in full upscaling. And as we will deliver a billion over the year, it will be region by region, country by country. We work with the government to discuss on how much will be available when and we'll communicate that. Um, but we are confident that we will be able to make to provide a billion in the course of the year.
1: But what does that mean then? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, you've got to get the emergency approval. So give me an idea of what the timeline is. I think we're all kind of fixated on getting the vaccine so that our life can get back to normal. So what does the emergency approval process look like? And then when do you actually anticipate getting vaccines into arms and then at what rate?
4: So we will submitter uh, filing, so we noted that the, the data now, uh, we, uh, we worked on it, uh, that we finalized, and then the FDA and EMA will have to do their work, the European as well as the US, uh, US agency will start their work, and, ho- and most likely towards the end of February, we'll have an advisory panel pending, of course, decision of the FDA. And then we'll see uh, getting approval, emergency use approval.
2: And then in March, we'll be able to start delivering vaccine. So you think a realistic timeline for us to actually receive Johnson & Johnson single dose vaccine would be March? It will start in the month of March. Uh, there also, with the
4: U.S. government, we have made an agreement over this, uh, for several, uh, for, for 100 million vaccines to
2: start with, and we'll keep up to that agreement to, to be able to deliver that. I'm wondering mm-hmm. how you see this shot being used in the context of, of this, as you call, pandemic recovery toolkit, you know, especially fitting in with the mRNA vaccines that we see from Moderna and, and Pfizer as well. Mm-hmm. The rollout of those has, has been really tough here in the United States. There have been a lot of speed bumps, but... Uh, you don't have to keep this one at a temperature for a very, a very cold temperature for a significant period of time. I mean, there are oh. a lot of differences here. How do you see the rollout uh, working in the context of these other vaccines?
4: Well, it's it. You point at the right thing. It's a single dose, so with one shot, you get this protection starting day fourteen, and and the immune uh, matures at twenty eight and even longer. So that that goes fast, uh, and then it. Um, it has two to eight Celsius, uh, uh, which is normal refrigeration temperature for t- stability for three months. So we can distribute in the country at normal refrigeration, which allows to get vaccinated almost in every uh, healthcare center, pharmacy in a very simple way. Um, so and that that will help. And the single shot combined with that and the high efficacy for for severe disease, death, and hospitalization can have a very important effect. In addition very short very clean safety profile we have uh, we have not observed serious adverse events no anaphylactic shock so further to be evaluated by the regulators but that will
2: also be a, an attractive feature with uh, with a very favorable safety profile so that means that people who perhaps have not been adv- who had been advised against getting mrna vaccine uh this could be an option for them be an option,
4: but it will be determined by the authorities who will get access first as this is a emergency use application. It's, uh, it will be distributed by the government.
1: Mm-hmm. Hey, Paul, do you see this as a vaccine mm-hmm. that's going to help with some of the logistical challenges that we've seen in the vaccine rollout because this two-dose, you know, often having to be refrigerated at extreme temperatures has, has complicated the process. Do you see this J&J vaccine maybe easing those logistical uh, hurdles?
4: it will simplify logistics significantly because it can also for, follow normal pharmaceutical distribution centers. Uh, we don't need, in fact, any special any special circumstance to bring this vaccine to the places where it can be used. So that is going to be good. And then, uh, and yeah, the, the normal refrigeration will make it simple. Single dose will make it simple.
1: So one thing I want to ask you, and I just want to go back to, because you talked about a billion doses. So um, I'm just curious how many you guys have already manufactured at this point and that are kind of ready to go once the FDA says go ahead J and j
4: we have var- uh, vaccines ready a lot of upscaling is ongoing and in the weeks and months to follow we will be able to to uh communicate all about quantities and deliveries.
2: Well, it certainly is all hands on deck at Johnson & Johnson and around the world in getting vaccines developed. That was Paul Stoffels, Vice Chairman of the Executive Committee and Chief Scientific Officer at J&J.
1: That full interview, though, you can also hear on our podcast feed. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Tim, as pharmaceutical companies work on getting out those COVID-19 vaccines... Well,
2: the other battle, Carol, is convincing people to actually get the shots, especially in minority communities. That's next.
1: And a little bit later on, Jeff Be delivering a shocker as he steps down from the top spot at Amazon. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
2: Carol, we're learning more and more about who's taking the vaccine in in different parts of the country, and we're getting some distressing figures. New York City initial vaccine data show a deep racial disparity. So let's go through some of these numbers here because they're pretty stark. White residents made up almost half of the people who have received at least one dose, despite consisting of only a third of the population here in New York City. This is according to a great story we had last week in Bloomberg.
1: Yeah, Tim, I feel like this has been a story that we've been talking about a lot during the pandemic, how it has disproportionately affected affected certain communities, especially minority and black communities. And what you talk about what's going on in New York City, we're seeing that more broadly around the country. The AP, the Associated Press, did an analysis and they found that an early look at the 17 states and two cities that have released racial breakdowns through the 25th of January, found that black people in all places are getting inoculated at levels below their share of the general population and in some cases, significantly below. And we know that there have been leaders in the black community that are really trying to reach out to their populations to get the vaccine.
2: And here in New York City, Carol, the lowest ratio indeed was among black residents, even though they make up almost a quarter of the city's population. Mm. Uh, in According to this recent data released by the city, they only accounted for 11% of those who had been vaccinated.
1: One of the leaders we caught up with was Bishop T.D. Jakes. He's a pastor and author, filmmaker. He's got quite a following. He's got some 4.4 4 million followers on Twitter. He's chairman of the T.D. Jakes Foundation. And he's really been, Tim, over the last year, been a go-to voice for us when it comes to the multiple crises of the past year year. We've talked to him about racism in the past. We've talked about the election. And of course, we've talked about the pandemic and now the vaccine.
2: And on that, he has been concerned about the disproportionate impact that the pandemic has had on minorities and their access to vaccines. Bishop Jakes recently hosted a conversation that included Dr. Anthony Fauci and other leading medical professionals involved directly in COVID vaccine research.
5: We did an extensive uh, conversation with Dr. Kisimekia Corbett and Dr. Ogilago from Yale University, and she's from the Institute of Biology and Infectious Diseases, and of course, Dr. Fauci, just to aggregate information and ask some questions that would help to alleviate some concerns or address some of the concerns that are are prevalent in the African-American community.
2: Do you think those concerns, Bishop Jakes, are are being addressed? Are are you hearing that those concerns are are shifting as we learn more and more about the vaccines?
5: I I think that they are gradually shifting in certain pockets. Of course, the African-American community is not a monolith. And so depending on your age and and who you congregate or coalesce with, uh, your perception of the situation might be varied according to your age group and how closely associated you are with the tremendous amount of deaths that we are seeing, uh, being a pastor also. I'm abundantly aware of how many funerals we're conducting Mm -hmm. and really have a front-row seat on the families behind the numbers. So it's very apparent to me that we are definitely losing lives at a much larger rate than our white counterparts. And uh, so it was really important to me to use our platform to level the playing for and get out adequate and accurate information
1: right the CDC did come out and they've talked about black Hispanic and Native American people dying from COVID-19 at almost three times the rate of white people so Bishop Jakes do you feel like things are improving that there's more information out there maybe education to put the black community maybe more at ease so that they will up in terms of uh, their numbers for getting the vaccine
5: my biggest concern is that even where the uh, attitude is improving, the access is not. Mm-hmm. So we're only having about 10% uh, penetration into the black community where it is accessible, particularly to our older citizens, where they can easily get in for one and then come back and get the second uh, vaccination that's necessary to uh, secure some relative safety from, from being infected. And so that that is a problem. Accessibility is a problem. And then... Dispelling this continues to be a challenge. I think it's something that we're going to be working on all through first and second quarter of the year, probably into the third quarter, uh, getting them comfortable just due to the fact that we've had so many historical disparaging incidents that have occurred between health professionals, government officials, and the black community that have continued to cause an angst and an anxiety amongst people of color in trust associated with uh taking the vaccination i think that the community most trust its own uh leadership there are various leaders uh mm-hmm. the faith community is one aspect of it but also personalities of interest that also have coalesced huge following the people uh that they trust uh their motives i think that's one aspect of it and i think people everyday people off the street influence people more than even personalities do. So I think they have to use a multi-pronged approach in order to dispel myths. And unfortunately, you're also fighting the onslaught of social media and and wrong information being perpetuated.
1: Yeah, that fight is a reminder from officials that we really need to focus on the science and medicine when it comes to the virus and vaccine. That, again, was Bishop T.D. Jakes, pastor, author, filmmaker, chairman of the T.D. Jakes Foundation.
2: As we've heard, leaders in the faith-based community are integral in reducing COVID vaccine skepticism mm-hmm. and hesitancy. But look, Carol, when you think about this in the historical context of like the Tuskegee experiment, you the understand. vaccine hesitancy absolutely makes sense.
1: Yeah, you understand the fear that's out there. Totally. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. Still ahead. Jeff Bezos delivers quite a surprise this week.
2: That's next. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes, Tim Stenevik from Bloomberg Radio.
1: All right, Tim, let's get to the blockbuster story of the week. It was about the world's largest online retailer.
2: Yeah, it wasn't just that it breached the one billion dollars a day revenue mark in 2020. I think about that last year, Amazon every single day bringing in more than a billion dollars in revenue. Right. It was, of course, the man behind it all, Mr. Jeff Bezos, stepping down as CEO of the company.
1: But as we know, listen, he's a busy man. He's a young man. He's got got a lot of things still to do. He's not leaving the company he created. He's just stepping down as CEO.
2: And our go-to voice on this is Brad Stone. He's senior executive editor of Global Technology. He also literally wrote the book on Amazon. It's The Everything Store, Jeff Bezos and the Age of Amazon. And he's also working on a sequel, Amazon Unbound. It comes out in May.
1: Really looking forward to that. Brad told us that Bezos's moves seem like the natural next step. And it opens up a new age for Amazon. So I got to say, we talked about a lot, but I think what we love most in talking to Brad was that he, like most of us, was really, really surprised by this news. I uh, uttered a loud expletive when I saw <laughs> the
3: news. Um, in so, in some ways, it is. it does feel like a natural progression and a formulation of the formalization of the status quo at Amazon, where he's really been working on new things and allowing his deputies to run the, the bigger businesses. But it's also surprising. I mean, you know, he this is someone who you know micromanages businesses, whose identity is wrapped up in Amazon, who obviously took and deserves a you know a lot of credit for the remarkable rise of this company over the past twenty five years. One point seven dollars, one point seven trillion dollars in market cap. Um, So it's hard to imagine him moving on. Um, It's it's probably going to be a little bit of a test of of Andy Jassy to see how much room he has and can take to operate with Bezos still there as executive chairman and, and placing a lot of these big bets.
2: Were, were you surprised at all by Andy Jassy being the person who was named to fill Bezos' shoes?
3: Not at all. And in, in some respects, though, you kind of look back and you wonder whether this has been in the works for a while. So there was a lot of speculation about the succession plan and whether it was Jassy or Jeff Wilkie. You know, Wilkie was another deputy who for uh, many years ran the, the retail group um before that really architected Amazon supply chain. You know, he, he was a possibility to take over as well. And then last year we found out that Wilkie was going to retire uh, in January of two thousand twenty one. So who knows, maybe the the writing was on the wall and he saw it. But where it does make sense is is Jassy has, you know, built this amazing business, AWS, a fifty billion dollar run rate, you know, really changed the way Companies and governments and universities buy their technology. You know now they they do it in the cloud rather than servers in the in the back room. Um, he's he's changed enterprise computing. You've got Microsoft and Google and IBM and Oracle pursuing Amazon. But Jassy also has the the you know the, the full a handle on the full company because he sat on the S team. He's been a part of major decisions like where to put HQ two and whether to buy Whole Foods. And when he started at the company in the late nineties he worked in the retail group. So he, he really had the full scope of the company. And it kind of makes sense that he, he'd be the guy to step up. All
1: right. I have to say that in your story, I was drawn to this. You say Bezos' decision to step down also reflects an uncomfortable reality for one of the wealthiest people in the world. And that is the walls of his highly compartmentalized empire have been crumbling for some time. I don't look at Amazon, uh, Brad, typically and think of it as crumbling. But so what do you mean?
3: Right, right. Well, actually, that's a good point, Carol. So And this is a theme of my upcoming book. Um, Bezos, you know, is the largest shareholder and and the outgoing CEO of Amazon. But he also owns the Washington Post personally. He has a private space company, Blue Origin. He's got an an investment fund and a family office. And he's got these philanthropies now, um, the Day One Fund and the Bezos Climate Fund or the Bezos Earth Fund, and a lot of there's a lot of pressure on him to give away his money. And over the past few years, we've seen a collision on all, all these assets. So the Washington Post made life very difficult for Amazon during the Trump administration. Um, you've got um, union organizers and, and 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 workers protesting Amazon's treatment of its of its warehouse workers in front of Bezos, you know personal properties, homes ar- yeah. around the country. Um, and, he, and as he's been trying to give away his money to climate organizations, they've expressed concern about Amazon's climate impact and its, its, uh, its relationship with organized labor. So that's what I mean by the walls kind of crumbling. Yeah. He can't keep everything compartmentalized anymore.
2: You also have this anecdote about him traveling to India in the early, early part of last year and Prime Minister Narendra Modi declining to meet with him. Uh, because of the Post's coverage of the country. I guess my question is, can you then, with Jeff Bezos as executive chairman, but no longer as CEO, will that help solve some of these issues? Or is he, like, inextricably bound to Amazon?
3: Yeah, that's a great point, Tim. He it, it, it can't, can't escape it that easily. Um, you know, for, for guidance, we can kind of look to Bill Gates, though, right, who, who was really seen 20 years ago as a, as a monopolist, uh, you know, sharp business elbows, Um, The government, the the way the U.S. government's coming down on Microsoft. And now he's really a roving philanthropist diplomat who's been a leader um, in in this in this pandemic crisis. So, yeah, in the short term, no. I mean, Jeff obviously can't outrun Amazon and he'll be inextricably linked to the company and all of its political issues. But maybe over the long term, as Bill Gates has done, he can kind of chart a path for himself. As a more independent philanthropist.
1: Listen, and Jeff made it very clear, um, Brad, that he's not retiring. Um, so, where should he? Where will he spend most of his time going forward? It's all going to be about the the geeky inventions and the big and the
3: bets that he thinks could lead to Amazon's next wave of growth. And this is one of those things that I observed reporting in the new book. He he loves to micromanage and. And and really get into the weeds of the new things. Um, so I'm going to mute my uh, Alexa before I say the word Alexa. So he <laughs> but he he really he really micromanaged Alexa. Um, the the cashierless Amazon Go stores. He was he was deeply involved in that. The healthcare initiatives Amazon is trying. Project Kuiper, which is this very expensive effort to get satellites into space and to and to sell internet access. He's involved in that. And, you know, he sees these as, as big bets. He, he's really an, an inventor at heart. Um, I'm sure they'll read him into the big decisions. They call mm. them one-way doors, kind of Amazon lingo for decisions that can't be reversed. Um, but I expect that um, in addition to all the other stuff, he's going right. to continue uh, to basically geek out at Amazon.
2: Brad, I want to talk about space. When it comes to the wealthiest people in the world... Uh, Jeff Bezos is number two. Elon Musk is number one, according to the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. They are both involved in a new kind of space race. Where does uh, Jeff Bezos stack up versus Elon Musk?
3: Right. Well, it's, it's not a favorable juxtaposition, at least right now. I mean, SpaceX is launching it seems every week uh, the the Dragon Nine to um, uh, to orbit to the International Space Station. Um, it's it's uh, it's been it's been testing, I guess, the, the Starship, the, 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 the larger rocket with kind of kind of entertain, entertainingly exploded upon attempted landing. But um, SpaceX also announced that they're going to be bringing um, paying astronauts, paying tourists to orbit. And, and Blue Origin, you know, frankly, hasn't really hasn't really hit any of those benchmarks. It, it has always taken a more step by step approach um, the the first project is called New Shepherd, and he wants to take like like Richard Branson, uh, Blue Origin wants to take paying tourists to suborbital space, so the very edge of space. And they've been working on that for fifteen years. and i I gather, and I reported that they're going to that they're hoping to take human passengers later this year, but that's going to be a big test for the CEO bob smith uh, who who joined a couple of years ago um, to see whether they can really safely pull that off. And then Blue Origin's building a rocket called New Glenn, which will more directly compete with with SpaceX's uh, launch capacity, but that's delayed. And and that's probably got a couple of years until it, it comes out of the factory. So Bezos spends a lot of money on this. I, you know, They profess that it's not a competition, that they're taking their time, that there's lots of room for many winners in, in this growing category. But I know that I, I suspect and, and strongly suspect that the mismanagement there and the slow progress really frustrates Jeff Bezos.
1: I remember when it felt like these space companies, whether it was Branson, whether it was Elon Musk, whether it was Jeff Bezos, that it just seemed like a kind of a fun thing for billionaires. Elon Musk has shown it's a lot more serious than that. And a Real business um, going forward. I do wonder. Speaking of fun, the timing of this—is it just not as much fun to, to run the company? Mm. I'm just trying to understand a little bit about Jeff Bezos and his timing.
3: Well, you know, we don't, of course, know for sure because they're being very circumspect in, in what they say. But we can, we can. Take a couple of guesses as to why Bezos is moving on later this year from the CEO role to be executive chairman. And I think you're right. I mean, one of of the factors is that the CEO of the company is going to be the guy getting grilled in Washington, getting grilled by the FTC, getting grilled in in Brussels. And as we saw last year when Bezos had to testify in front of the House antitrust uh, subcommittee, he would probably be rather doing other things.
2: Look, Amazon needs to look for big bets that can keep revenue growing, which it certainly did, up 44% in the fourth quarter of the year. That was Brad Stone. He's senior executive editor of Global Technology, also the author of The Everything Store, Jeff Bezos and the Age of Amazon, and the upcoming sequel, Amazon Unbound, comes out in May.
1: Yeah, looking really forward to that book, my understanding is you can already start pre-ordering it. Just going to put in a little plug for Brad. All right, that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser.
2: And I'm Tim Stenevek. Coming up in our next hour, more on Amazon and the CEO who will take over for Jeff Bezos.
1: Plus, Bitcoin may have recently taken a backseat to the likes of the meme stocks, but it is still on a tear after last year's surge. We've got one Bitcoin slayer that's been buying it up. And women of color only receive 0.6% of venture capital funding.
2: Why black female entrepreneurs get less than 1% of venture capital funding, and what can be done about it? And buckle up, the CEO of Subaru of America on pandemic buying. That's all the next hour
1: of Bloomberg Week. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Hi, I'm Carol Masser.
2: And I'm Tim Stanovac of Bloomberg Quick Take.
1: Plenty coming up in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including...
2: Bitcoin continuing to move higher. Elon Musk now joining the chorus of supporters. We check in with the CEO and founder of MicroStrategy on his buying spree.
1: He's been buying up a lot. And Tim, it's been harder historically for minorities, especially black female founders, to get venture capital funding. What can be done to change this? We're going to talk about that.
2: And the CEO of Subaru of America on the company's recent record month. I loved this interview, Carol.
1: Well, thank you very much. First up, though, let's get back to our big business story of the week. We can't stop talking about it. Of course, we're talking about Jeff Bezos of Amazon not leaving the company, but stepping away from the CEO spot.
2: And in his job, a longtime Amazonian and someone who is very much in the mold of Mr. Jeff Bezos, but not yet a household name.
1: Yeah, but I'm guessing, Tim, he probably will. We're talking about Andy Jassy. He takes over as Amazon CEO later on this year. Bloomberg News technology reporter Matt Day filling us in on the new guy who is actually not new to Amazon.
8: He's an Amazon lifer. He joined in 1997 at a Harvard business school. So he's been, you know, in Bezos' shadow for for quite a while. He was actually the first um and the sort of chief of staff to uh, to Bezos when they first established that role at Amazon. it was very much in the mold of uh, of the executive he's been following for for quite some time there.
2: And what about when it comes to his role uh, with Amazon Web Services? I mean, Amazon Web Services is by far the most profitable segment when it comes to Amazon, but it's by no means the biggest.
8: That's right. Um, you know, I think people were surprised. You know, it's just five, six years ago now when Amazon first broke out. The revenue from Amazon Web Services, Andy Jassy's led it since its inception. Um, it is the biggest profit driver for the company. It's really reshaped how um, corporations of all sizes buy their own technology. You know, they're far and away the leading cloud computing company. I think it's, his promotion really underlines the, the value of uh, you know this. Wonky tech business to what a lot of people think of as, as a primarily retail company.
1: Matt, I love your story, and you really get into who this guy is. And I- I'm curious, you know, it sounds like Jassy understood the potential for something like Amazon Web Services way before anyone else. I always talk about the time years ago when the Bloomberg story came out and it was like, if you were streaming XYZ last night, you probably were doing it through an Amazon Web server. And we were like, what? Wait, what, what is this business that Amazon's into? What was it that Jassy saw and that enabled him to kind of just get out there and in many ways own this market?
8: So Jassy and Bezos and a few other Amazon executives, you know, 15 years ago now, they looked at the way that companies Buy technology, run technology, and realized it was all, you know, kind of cumbersome and complicated to string together. So they worked to simplify it to its simplest parts, right? And that's, that's really what they launched with. Here's an online storage service. Here's an online, you know, the equivalent of, of processing power, raw, raw computer chips uh, for rent, essentially. Um, and by kind of breaking it down into its simplest parts, they made a really, really simple case that you know, maybe customers uh, wanted to string all this together themselves, and and they were they were proved right by that. Um, you know, folks did want that kind of simplicity and, and ease of use, um, and it's really reshaped things.
2: What about when it comes to Jeff Bezos's management style? Um, you know, you you said that Jassy has been at Amazon for uh, as a lifer. Uh, what does it mean in terms of how he's going to lead Amazon, similarly or or, or different than Jeff Bezos has led it?
8: He's definitely in the Bezos mold in terms of how he structures his team, right? There's these these legendary uh, weekly meetings he'll have where they dive into data and and try to pick out trends and, and kind of lead with the customer and lead with the numbers. That's very uh, Bezosian in the way that he structured it. I think it, it's too soon to tell how he's going to bring um, what change he might bring rather to the retail side of the business. And he's been been diving into cloud for for a very long time. And though he's been in all the all the top meetings, you know, he hasn't been running day to day operations for the company's sprawling other divisions. Um, so I think we've, the expectation is for a, a similar style to, to Bezos and then maybe something different as he gets his, his hands into the other elements of the company.
1: Well, that's what I want to ask you because you said very much in the mold of Jeff Bezos, which could be an incredible thing and certainly be calming to investors right now. But at the same time, you know, what, do, what does Amazon need in a CEO going forward? Especially then you, you still have the safety net of Jeff Bezos being around.
8: Well, I think Bezos would, would probably say that Amazon still needs to make big bets. Um, you know, so they are, they are a, a giant company, and I think they get the reputation for sort of winning in, in every market they, they enter. Amazon doesn't see it that way. They, they look around and they see fierce competitors in, in every area in which they play, whether it's Walmart, retail, Microsoft and cloud. You know, there's plenty of others down the line. And so I think that the marching orders for him coming in certainly as Bezos would would reject it to keep making those kind of large bets that can move the needle for you know what's already a you know one point seven trillion dollar company.
2: Hey Matt, what does this mean for Amazon Web Services now? Because um, look, since Amazon established AWS years ago, there is so much more competition, and there's also uh, pricing pressure.
8: That's for sure. And that's, it's been a little bit of a debate in the financial analyst community, you know, what threat do uh, you know, Microsoft and Google who are very much, you know, following the AWS playbook, what threat do they present to to Amazon's cash cow? You know, I, I think this this elevation certainly answers the, you know, does Amazon want to cleave off Amazon Web Services conversation? It's been a, a long point of debate about whether it'd be worthwhile to spin off that unit just because of the obvious differences from the retail business. You know, Jassy taking the, the top role probably cools that uh, for, for a little bit anyway.
1: Right, because do they, in some ways, it, it provides them a bit of a cushion to have that uh, company part of, you know, the Amazon umbrella at this point?
8: Oh, absolutely. Um, but I think there's, there's been some drag from the, uh, uh, if you're sitting in, on the AWS side anyway, just all of the sort of political entanglements that. Amazon has found itself in, thanks to its its market power in retail and and some of the, the you know personal feuds uh, between you know former President Trump and and Jeff Bezos. You know, I think if if Andy were being a little candid, Andy Jesse, he might admit that uh, you know being related to Amazon has maybe hurt AWS and some sales conversations over the years. So it's a, a tricky political line to navigate.
2: Well, Jassy certainly got his work cut out for him.
1: Man, and listen, following in some tough footsteps, (laughs) just gonna say.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point, Carol. But look, he's been at the company for pretty much his whole career. Right. So he knows how it works inside and out.
1: And knows Jeff Bezos inside and out as well.
2: Well, that was Bloomberg News technology reporter, Matt Day. Coming up, did you know you can apparently purchase goods on Amazon using Bitcoin and a third-party service? I did I did not know that.
1: I did not know that either. I was kind of Googling about this. Bitcoin, though, increasingly finding its way into many things. And if our next guest has his way, it will become the transactional asset of choice.
2: That's next. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
2: OK, so before we were talking about the price of GameStop stock every day, we were doing the same thing with Bitcoin, Carol. Remember, it ran up 305% in the last year and it's rallying again this year.
1: Yeah, remember in December, it's like every day, it's like, okay, here's where Bitcoin is. Here's where it moved in the last day. And this week, Elon Musk's support for Bitcoin and a record run-up in Ether helped take the market value of digital tokens to an all-time high, which is why one listener said to me, you have got to get on Michael Saylor, chairman, CEO, and founder of MicroStrategy, who has been, as we know, Tim, buying up Bitcoin in the last year or so.
2: He joined you along with Bloomberg Intelligence commodity strategist Mike McGlone, who covers Bitcoin. Michael Saylor began by talking about his holdings and that buying spree.
9: We've invested all of our free cash and we've uh, borrowed $650 million. So, I don't know, uh, 200% of our balance sheet, <laughs> something like that, but, but uh, we're up about 1.2 billion since we started buying. So, so uh, we have a lot of Bitcoin. Um, in terms of our strategy, uh, we were buying it at ten thousand. We were buying it at eleven thousand. We bought it at nineteen thousand. At twenty-one thousand. At thirty-one thousand. I announced to the world that we bought our last batch of ten million dollars worth at thirty-three thousand eight hundred. I think we'll be buying it
1: forever. Forever. What? Where do you see we're it going? We're going to keep buying. Well, yeah, we know. We know you like it. Um, yeah. Where do you see the value going? We've had you know various guests come on and. Talk about a quarter of a million dollars. Where do you see it going?
9: Well, look, I think Bitcoin is digital gold on the world's first digital monetary network. And so it represents a high-yield savings account to consumers, and there's plenty of them that would like to get paid 200% tax-free. It represents digital gold for institutions, and they've got a big problem. They need a safe haven. It represents a monetary network for Facebook and Google and Amazon investors, And it's a lifeboat for a billion people in the developing world that have currencies that are collapsing. So if you wonder where's it going? Well, first it's going to flip gold, which is going to take it to $500,000 a coin. Then it's going to start to, it's going to start to attract capital from weaker safe haven assets like negative yielding sovereign debt low yielding stock indexes other types of metals and commodities right right and uh, and the like okay. and that that'll take it up by another factor of 10.
1: Mike McLone, you want to come, out, come on in on this conversation?
9: Oh,
10: yes. Well, Michael, um, thanks for coming on. The key thing that struck me about when I really heard what you were doing last summer and you just nailed the media and you hover- covered it so well is your, your sense of the history. So the, 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 the key question I really want to get out of, I think, from you today is how do you think future generations will look back upon you and us and what we're doing now in Bitcoin, um, say, 50, 100 years from now, or maybe even just 10 years from now?
9: I think for five thousand years we had the gold standard, and that was a, a non-sovereign bearer instrument store of value. I think for forty or fifty years uh, we've uh, we've drifted through the fiat standard, and we've been looking for a new anchor. And I think that Bitcoin is go- is the emergent digital monetary protocol for moving money through time and space. And I think it's good for another five thousand years, Mr. McGlone. I think it's. <laughs> I think that. 50 years from now, people are going to say this was that transition period when the world figured out what a digital monetary network was and what a protocol for moving money around is. And they can't imagine a world without it.
1: Michael, though, let me understand something, because what I keep hearing is that there's going to be a fixed supply. So how can it then become something on par? There's a fixed supply of gold as well. But can it be something that we really put on par with gold? And I'm just curious what your thesis is beside, you know, behind investing so much in, in one asset, essentially.
9: Well, you know, people say fixed supply. But, of course, what we're really talking about is 21 million coins infinitely divisible. They're divisible infinitely. So it's only fixed in the sense that the numbers 1 through 10 are fixed you have the principles of mathematics or arithmetic and geometry. There's 360 degrees in a circle. That's a fixed supply. And a fixed supply applies to geometry, arithmetic and conservation of energy and the laws of physics. Like there's a fixed supply of energy and you can't make or eliminate it. So it's not a limitation. In fact, in fact, conservation of the laws of physics and energy are critical to the working of of electrical systems, pneumatic systems, hydraulic systems, every engineering system on the face of the earth. And so when right. people talk about fixed supply of Bitcoin, what they mean is Wait.
1: this is a monetary network that works and doesn't right. leak. Listen, Michael, one thing that we've got to ask you about is risk. And um, what could go wrong here when it comes to Bitcoin?
9: Yeah, um, well, I, I think that... Uh, most of the risk around Bitcoin is really just news FUD and regulatory FUD concerns about uh, how will various governments treat it and what will happen um, as governments normalize the regulation. They're putting some know-your-customer and anti-money laundering regs in place to normalize it compared to other assets. And sometimes people get a little bit skittish about it. But, but ultimately, as it normalizes, that risk will go away.
7: Um, Michael, Mike McGlone,
10: um, how about any – the question I've heard from other people is this is a revolutionary technology. How about another technology improving upon it or replacing it? And that's from a person who's a markets guy, not really tech technology guy. Is, there, is that a <clears throat> risk? Do you, do you view that as a potential risk?
9: Yeah, I think non-technologists sometimes think that. But what they don't understand is that it's a monetary protocol like TCPIP or like the English language, mm-hmm. like – When everybody agrees to speak English, there might be a better language, but we're not replacing it. When we all agree to use inches and pounds, the metric system comes along, but it's really difficult to get people to replace it. And Bitcoin is a monetary protocol. All the innovations going on on the edge with companies like Square and PayPal, and the underlying protocol has power because of the network effect. And the the network is not just a function of the hundred million-plus people that use it. The other part of the network effect is Newtonian laws of gravity. When you have hundreds of billions of dollars of monetary energy on the network, there's no way that's moving. Once people decide what's the winning network, they're going to stick with it, just like we stick with Twitter and Facebook and Google and YouTube. It's incredibly powerful. And new technology, like a better YouTube – Right. And a better Twitter isn't going to win, and everybody knows that they're not winning. We want the network that all of our friends use, where all the money is.
2: Well, all about access. That was MicroStrategy CEO and founder Michael Saylor, along with Bloomberg Intelligence commodity strategist Mike McGlone.
1: Still to come on Bloomberg Business Week. What we're starting to see is that organizations understand that they have to have a systems. Based approach. How to create a more equitable playing field in the world of venture capital from one entrepreneur who found it pretty tough to raise some money.
2: This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
1: So, Tim, our next guest is a Harvard Law School grad. She co-founded Canaries. It's a feedback platform. It's helping to solve DNI issues and inequities in workplaces. She's also using her personal experience to create more opportunities for people of color in the VC space. We know, we hear about... Minority entrepreneurs, how hard it is to raise money.
2: Yeah, it's incredibly difficult. And by the way, Carol, her company works with Yum Brands, of course, Mm -hmm. the parent company of Taco Bell and others, Neiman Marcus and the Dallas Mavericks. Canary CEO and co-founder Mandy Price joined us with more.
11: What we're starting to see is that organizations understand that they have to have a systems-based approach um, because for so long what we heard and what the organization's uh, focus was was on increasing the pipeline. They felt that, you know, the the entire issue is really around the pipeline, the talent acquisition system, but that's just one uh, piece of of the pie. And so what we need to do and what research has shown, right, when we look at McKinsey and Lean Lean's report, every year, they've been doing it for uh, five, I believe it's going to be the sixth year, they see that only a handful of the organizations have the systems and structures in place to uh, actually uh, reduce the inequities that we see from an organizational standpoint. So I think the fact that we're starting to think about this from an organizational intervention perspective, as opposed to relying only on those individual interventions, which we have typically seen in sense of um, uh, some type of unconscious bias training or other DI compliance training that's really based off reducing discrimination, which really doesn't get to the heart of the issue as far as our systems and our policies. Now, Carol, I'm going to highlight just a couple of things, like I said, that organizations can do from a structural standpoint.
1: Mandy, I kind of <laughs> asked you a loaded question and a big question that, as you said, we could probably talk for hours about it uh, in terms of how do we really get to changes when it comes to D&I uh, and equities within the workplace. And you, you said you had some some points that you wanted to make. So let me, let me toss it back to you.
11: Yeah. So some of the things we do when we're working with our clients, right? Because um, what you hit on is exactly the, the problem that a lot of organizations and leaders have, which is where do I even start, right? How do we even start thinking about this from a systems and organizational perspective? And so some of the things we do is help them with that diagnosis. So we're looking at things like um, when we when we look at your pay practices, are you basing uh, pay in someone's salary? Are you looking at prior salary history to determine their current salary? Or are you looking at just the job? Uh, and and the experience required for the job, because we know that these pay disparities and equities exist within our society. So when we do that common practice that most organizations do, which is using salary history in the interview and hiring pro, pro- uh, process, what we see is that organizations have these disparities that are coming into their own workplace that they didn't intend just because of the disparities that exist in society. And so those are the types of analysis and and reviews that we do to ensure that we're having a sound structure and policy within our organization to reduce and eliminate these inequities as much as possible.
1: Now, I have to say, in planning for this interview, um, our producer, Donnie, who was involved in it, and he said, you know, what's interesting, too, is they've got this platform that basically let's, you know, various employees, from what I understand, is, you know, if they want to post something on their employer, they can do it anonymously. And that is, I think, even on your is fairly prominent on your website. Talk to us about why this is such an important ability to be able to do.
11: Yeah, it's critical, because unless employees have a safe way to provide feedback, organizations don't know the and opportunities that exist within their workplace, that safe mechanism Mm -hmm. to allow employees to provide that feedback so that organizations can make the needed change. One of the things that's also uh, really, uh, we've had our our system set up is because talent says that looking for an employer that values diversity, equity, inclusion is one of the most important things for a potential employer. So uh, we have a lot of potential applicants that come to our platform Looking at companies' uh, diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives, which we all track on our platform as well, to really learn what are the employers of choice in the companies that values really reflect their own values. The most common problem that we see is that organizations haven't been measuring and tracking this at all. Mm -hmm. Um, They measure diversity, but they're not measuring equity and inclusion or looking at their systems from this kind of equity and inclusion lens, And so, uh, which is really baffling, right? Um, And they're different, right? They're different. Yeah, they're different. You know, when we think about diversity, diversity is, you know, individual's identity. That's gender, that's race, that's, you know, your religious background. Those are all diversity factors. When we think about inclusion, that is, I feel like I belong in this workplace no matter what my identity is. And then when we think about equity, that is, I have the same access and opportunities no matter what my identity is either. And so it's important for organizations to not only look at Uh, diversity and to have that measurement around diversity, but to really make sure that they're measuring inclusion and equity within the organization as well.
2: That was Mandy Price, co-founder and CEO of Canaries.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week coming up.
2: A frank conversation with the CEO of Subaru of America on managing through the pandemic and challenges. That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg.
0: Is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
1: So, Tim, we did get some news this week from General Motors warning that a global semiconductor shortage will temporarily shut three plants and reduce production this year.
2: Yeah, that was certainly on our minds as Tom Dahl, president and CEO of Subaru of America, joined you to talk about the impact of the pandemic and auto sales for the year.
1: Got to say, it was a pretty frank conversation, and that is where we began on what that past year, this pandemic year, has been like.
10: Last I spoke to you, I think it was probably last uh, March or early part of April. Yeah, And we were really struggling at that time. Um, Our business was kind of in shatters like everybody else's was. And in fact, our factory had closed down probably from the end of March through about the middle of May. Uh, And then as we reopened, as, as the economy started to reopen, as we got into the late spring and early part of the summer, there was a tremendous rebound. And in fact, if you look at our sales from, I would say that July period through December, we were actually selling at about a 700,000 sales pace, which for us is pretty good. Uh, and that continued over into January. January, we had a record month. We sold 46,400 vehicles, best January we ever had in the history of the company. And we're looking yeah. forward to that momentum continuing as we go through the first half of the year and really as we project into the second half of the year because with all the stimulus that's currently out there and plus the stimulus that's currently being proposed or at least talked about at this point anyway. Uh, we think the market in the second half of the year could really pop. Uh, and we need to be prepared for that.
1: That's really interesting. So the stimulus money, is, is that what you, how you account for a lot of the increase in demand?
10: I think a lot of the increase in demand had to do with the fact that, uh, you know, people are really interested in SUVs and trucks. The mm-hmm. truck market and SUV market, including the small SUVs, where we compete heavily with our products like CrossTrack and Forrester, those segments are doing extremely well yeah um and of course the sedan market is has taken it on the chin as you know over the past year right because of, just because of the demographics of that segment the, the demographics are such that that's probably the buyer that would be more impacted by what was happening in the economy but buyers of trucks and SUVs are probably' le- were less affected and therefore we're able to kind of sustain the market yeah
1: I want to ask you, Tom. Are you finding that you're getting any kind of new time, you know, new or first time buyers? Because one of the things that we talked about a lot during the pandemic is people were like, "Okay, I can't travel anywhere. I'm limited to where I can go, but I can get in a car and I can drive," and that kind of became such a, a way of feeling a little bit of a freedom or normalcy. And I just do wonder, in terms of the buyers, were they repeat Subaru buyers, were they first time Subaru buyers, and were they first time car buyers?
10: Really good, really good question. Um, I would say it's a combination of both right I mean our owner our owner, loyal, our owner loyal, uh, loyalty is quite high You know we're number one in the industry in terms of our owner loyalty so we know we know based on the, on the total number of vehicles that we've sold over the last 10 or 12 years that a certain number of those people have to come back to the market anyway They just need to have another new car in addition to that we were conquesting we we're probably one of the few brands that are still able to conquest uh to a fairly strong extent mm-hmm.
1: and, what does that mean I, conquest <laughs> well that
10: means that means they're leaving other brands to come oh, to us
1: got it okay
10: uh, so we we're, we're able because of our you know our, our great products you know you can't do it without strong products as you know yeah and and as a result uh, you know with with uh, our awards and accolades that we get from automotive lease guide or kelly blue book you know we've got we've won kelly blue books most trusted brand i believe for six years in a row um, I think out of the last nine years, we've won ALG Automotive Lease Guides Award for mm-hmm. Best Residual Values in the Industry for seven years in a row, lowest cost owned. crash test by the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. We we kind of nail and check all the boxes. So as a result, people that are in the market for SUVs and particularly smaller or midsize SUVs where we're strong have a tendency to want to take a look at a Subaru, or at least they should before they make their final decision and we're lucky to get some of those customers to come to us.
1: So Tom let me ask you I'm sure you've been asked about it many times and I was I did watch or when you were joining our Bloomberg TV colleagues uh, this GM story uh, saying that they have some chip shortages and that it was hurting it you guys you've been doing okay?
10: So far we have been yes um, it is going to affect us at some point along the way but we know that through uh, the first quarter of the year, March, it's not going to impact us all that much. Now, we're still waiting to get information from our suppliers about how it might affect us as we get out into April and May in particular. Uh, but we're hopeful that the impact isn't going to be that much. What's going on? That's a good question. Um, you would think that uh, there'd be enough supply, given the fact that these electronic devices and 5G devices that People are saying is the cause of the shortage. People were purchasing these things well before the pandemic started. And then coming out of it, production was actually, for us, was very strong, and we could get really all the chips we wanted through the period um, up until probably early part of December. And that's when we first started to hear about this potential for a chip shortage. So I know they're working with our suppliers all over the world to try to figure out – where we can source additional chips. And I'll be honest with you, I mean, it seems to us anyway, the situation seems to be getting better, Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to worse. But I can't speak for all the other manufacturers, I can only kind of speak from us.
1: Right, right. I do have um, one question, though, I'm curious, are you concerned or could it lead to higher prices uh, down the road, potentially, especially if there are shortages?
10: I mean, it could be depending upon what the chip manufacturers do with their pricing. Uh, we all have pricing contracts with the chip suppliers, uh, but in a situation like we're in, and if you've got to somehow find another source for your chip supply, there could be increases in, in chip prices, but we're not at this point forecasting any significant increase in, in uh, prices as a result of the chip shortage.
1: Well, and it's interesting, too. You know, we've been talking a lot about kind of the chip industry, I feel like, um, Tom, over the last year. I mean, I look at my car. It's so much a piece of technology and the amount of, you know, technology that's in it running it. And, and as you move towards, you know, EVs, it becomes, I feel like, even more so. Um do we right. need to, as a world, as a country, kind of look at our chip supply chains more closely, and maybe even as governments being much more active in terms of uh, those businesses and making sure that everybody and anybody who needs them has access to them?
10: They are they are clearly a vital uh, aspect of our vehicle production. There's no question about it because they're in so many different components. They're in our head units, they're in our engine control modules, they're in a lot of the advanced safety equipment that we provide. So I do believe um, that it is something that governments need to look into to make sure that there's a secure supply of these chips so that manufacturers such as ourselves don't get caught in a situation where you can't supply an adequate number of these chips that would meet supply Mm -hmm. uh, and meet demand. Because you know, if if, uh, if manufacturers aren't able to get these chips, it literally does stop the production because you can't produce these vehicles and then insert the chip later. The chip has to be inserted into the device before it gets put into the vehicle. So it really is something that, um, you know, can, can really throw a wrench into the whole production system. So it is something I think it needs to be examined and looked into.
1: Yeah, it just feels like that there's been a fair amount of momentum building, especially over the last 12 months. Um, And maybe it has to do with supply chains and trade deals and so on, that we've all just been looking at this uh, more closely. Tell me what's coming down the pike from you guys. Uh, I feel like that there's been kind of ramped up more tension when it comes to EVs and more players getting more aggressive with some of their um, targets. How do you see it playing out?
10: We're just like everybody else, you know, with the way greenhouse gas uh, fuel economy standards and, and emissions requirements are, we're going to have to come to the market with a full slate of EVs and hybrid vehicles. In fact, our, our president in, at Subaru Corporation in Japan has said that by 2030, he's expecting that 40% of our sales volume will come from either EVs or uh, some type of hybrid type uh, vehicles. So the, the industry is moving in that direction, and it obviously could move faster depending upon what governments do in terms of mandating. Uh, but right now, the issue is more one of, of cost, right? Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you produce these vehicles at a cost-effective manner such that we can keep momentum that we've got going on in the market um, and keep people employed and, and, make, and making sure that people can really afford these cars?
1: Right, right. It's interesting. I don't feel like we've hit a tipping point, but I feel like, you know, forgive me, <laughs> Tesla has definitely tra- changed the trajectory here.
10: No, it's going to. I mean, it's um, and, and you can see what's what's happening in a lot of countries around the world, including yeah. our own, where government is now becoming more actively involved with um, uh, with, with 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 more of these electric vehicles and hybrid vehicles being produced in the market, because everybody's concerned about global warming, ourselves right. included, right. and we have to make sure we're good stewards of the environment. Um, but but it's it's happening at a very quick pace, and, and once that tipping point comes, I do believe it'll happen fairly quick. Um, I just think you know we have to overcome some of the range anxieties that customers have um, yeah. and make sure that the vehicles. Um, you know, can- are meet their needs.
2: That's Tom Dahl, president and CEO of Subaru of America. And the full conversation is available on our podcast feed.
1: And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And
2: I'm Tim Stenevec. Be sure to tune into our Bloomberg Business Week daily show Monday through Friday. It starts at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio.
1: You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News.
2: And check out to our Bloomberg Business Week podcast. Find that at Bloomberg.com, Apple or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And it's also, Tim, where you'll find our extra podcast. This week, it's Anthony Denier. He's the CEO of the commission-free online trading platform Webull. He also happens to be an Alibaba alum that also got caught up in the frenzy trading around meme stocks like GameStop and others.
10: We've been very fortunate to have to be growing at a, at a very fast pace over the course of the past year and a half, in particularly coinciding with uh, the whole retail trading world going to zero commission.
2: And you can also see me on Bloomberg Quick Take, available on Bloomberg.com QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV and more.
1: Is that where we'll find you digging out your car still?
2: <laughs> yeah, I still am. It was a lot of <laughs> snow, Carol.
1: Good luck with that. Bloomberg Business Week, also available on newsstands now at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. Have a great weekend, everyone.
2: This is Bloomberg.